Pervert a handbook passage to me, okay? You are listening to a Howard Plus Lorehounds production. We continue our episode by episode rewatch of the Apple TV sci fi Severance. If you're wondering, hey, where's John and where's David? I love those guys. I will respond by saying, your heart's in the right place. Definitely miss those guys. For season one, it's just Steve and I. John and David will join for our coverage of Season 2. But that does not stop you from checking out all of their fine podcasts. Take a look at what's going on with the Lorehounds at thelorehounds.com. And consider becoming a Patreon member. All right, here is Steve to talk about Episode 2. Steve, does your Audi like the sound of radar? (laughs) Such an amazing line. (laughs) I mean, these fun facts about Irv's Audi, like, uh, you know, your Audi got a a trophy and a picture in the paper. (laughs) Skilled at kissing and lovemaking. And lovemaking. I mean, but that fact is sort of equally presented with he likes the sound of rain. Well, they're radar. supposed to all be equal, right? Like that's you can't right. show preference to one particular trait. <laughs> so, so either they think that Irv is going to be like horned up by radar, yeah, radar, radar. He, he can't get a boner <laughs> unless he hears the radar blip. <laughs> or they think, or this is this thing is entirely designed to completely mess with his head, right? Uh, which it seems like the. That's more likely. Yeah, option. exactly. So this whole thing is interesting to me because it almost feels like a slow descent into psychological torture. Right. Because otherwise, like, they'd have a nap room or they'd have a ping pong tables or something to kind of mix it up. Because what you're asking these people to do is to live their entire conscious existence in this really sterile place with no windows i mean but then they offer the things like the melon party or whatever right this whole thing has got me a little bit so so wait maybe i'm thinking about this wrong i would enjoy a melon party oh yeah about you? I'm, a, I'm a big yeah. melon guy i think we've talked about this and what's your melon of choice so i like to explore the space with melons oh like i uh you're talking about like combinations? Well, like I mean, I you know, I love a honeydew. I love a cantaloupe. Uh this is, this is beginning to sound very sexual. <laughs> I'm not comfortable with this conversation. <laughs> I uh I yeah, I mean I went through so uh, there was like a a period where I was going through some like just give me all the melons. Give me the Santa Claus melon, give me uh the kiss melons, give me all the melons. Mm-hmm. And uh and I got to a point where I think the household was getting tired of my 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 melon. Uh, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say fetish, but it was definitely an appreciation. Um, mm-hmm. So like I get the melons, and it was exciting for a while. You know, people are like, "Yeah, hey, yeah, these go, oh, yeah, these really good melon. This is so sweet." And I, then I just like so every time. It wasn't time, the melons; it was you. Yeah, they were, and then they it, were <laughs> they were not happy with your 
delight over the melon. Right, because it's one of those things where it's like, hey, why don't you just go eat the melon and not narrate how much you enjoy that particular melon? <laughs> like it was like live, like like tweets or yelps on this melon. Like, oh, this one's not as sweet as the last one. Texture's okay. Like just <laughs> shut up and eat the melon. And then I realized, like, oh, man, I got a lot of melon and nobody else is eating this melon. And so I would just go, now I'm getting to a point where I'm like, I'm eating way too much melon. Well, then you then you got to get evangelistic about the melon. That's you right. got to try this. You got to try the melon. Yeah. Oh, no, I was uh, – I, I noticed people weren't coming home anymore. Like, like <laughs> my daughter and wife had to work late. Let's just, if we leave him in the house with the melon yeah. long enough, he will consume all of the melon. Like he's either going to be eating melon or having diarrhea from the melon. So <laughs> we have a window. So so I feel like maybe we are reading this incorrectly, but I'll, I'll save that. Let's, let's just go ahead and start with the first storyline here. So the previous day, Heli undergoes the severance procedure as a new employee implanting a microchip a microchip inside of her brain. So this begins earlier than the previous episode. Right. And we we finally see the, you know, this little bit of our conversation yesterday was the kinds of things that they're testing for Heli after the procedure. And one of the things was Mr. Egan's favorite breakfast. Right. Yeah. And so this kind of confirms that they are trying to test for short-term memory as well right yeah exactly and like and you know and not just that but like it's it's a memory that you would have because it was it was a bizarre thing and so like it's one of those things you would like make a specific mental note of when you heard it like to share that information yeah because either milchek is a psychopath which he might be anyway Mm -hmm. or he's just really excited about this particular fact about Mr. Egan or whatever, right. which makes him a, li- a little odd, a little odd, right? So, um, uh, yeah, so my feeling is now that I know this about Heli, there's got to be something about her that makes her an especially important employee, even yeah, though but- she's being hired at a lower level or something. Yeah, because Mil Milchek is, uh, he's he's like kind of humbled. It seems like to be around her. Later on, he says it's a miracle what you're doing. Right. This procedure that she undergoes. Do you have any thoughts on this scene? I mean, it's it's a bit graphic. Yeah, it's deep. That was the first thing I thought. Of. That is a deep, deep drill. You're seeing her skull. You're seeing the drill into her skull. She's she's awake. Yeah, the, the awake part was interesting, right? Like, why? And she's she's just sitting there like she's at the dentist, like with a fake smile on her face or whatever. Yeah, unsettling. Yeah, if someone's gonna drill into my skull, I I want to be put out. I that that's just me. I, I'm I know that I might present as a little bit cowardly, but I want <laughs> that's my preference. I would like to be put under if you're going to start drilling. I don't want to hear. I don't want to feel a vibration, number one. I don't want to hear my skull right. being bored. Yeah, I go to the ear doctor a bit. And um, one thing that they they do now is uh, they have they have a big screen in front of you so you can see what they're doing inside your ear. Mm-hmm. I hate it. 
I hate it. I'm like, why do you, why? I don't, well, how is this helping me? He's like, do you see what's in here? I'm like, yeah, it's gross. And is, I'm not getting paid to look at this. Right. You are. And he's like, and I'm like, I don't, I'm like, you, am I here to give you a second opinion? Like, I'm not. <laughs> and then it's like, and then you hear it all. You can't not hear it. So, like, when they're yeah. suctioning, it's like, it's such a surreal thing. And I'm watching and trying not to watch. And all of a sudden, suctions and then, like, grabs like a piece of inner ear meat. And it's like, and I'm like, oh, I don't like this at all. This is one of the big differences, which is me and my wife, because Sarah's really interested in, like, everything that's going on inside of her body. If she could, like, look and see what the doctor was doing. If she could be awake during a surgery and, like, like take a look inside there, she would absolutely do it. I don't even want to think about what's happening inside my Yeah, body. totally. Like, I, as far as I know, it's uh, I'm skin all the way through. Yeah, you're Martin Short, she's Dennis Quaid, and you guys are just going to have to. <laughs> that's right. Have to coexist. Uh, When's the last time you saw Inner Space? It's been a while. I try to coax my wife to watch Inner Space, and uh, and I I don't even know if I got to the to the word space in the compound now, and she was already on her way out of the room. (laughs) No, no, no! Take a bite of the melon. (laughs) She's like, you know what? I'm. I'd rather go check on the melon then. All right, next next uh, segment here. At the office, the severed Helly is introduced to her new co-workers, Dylan and Irving, uh, and is instructed that her job is to sort encrypted numbers into digital bins as part of macro data refinement. Uh, so this is the kind of the first thing. I mean, I guess... Th- there's a bunch of different mystery boxes, but for me, the one of the most interesting mystery boxes of this show is what these numbers indicate. Right. So and I think ha- we might have and how before. they and how they scare you. Yeah, like why are they like how do they evoke an emotional response? Uh, do are these do they do are they actually doing anything in the real world? I love the theories. <laughs> <laughs> One is that it's they're killing killer eels. What's better, the killer eel theory or the taking <laughs> swear words out of movies? <laughs> I like the idea that like to get swear words out of a movie, you have to create a whole different like company and department to do that remotely. Well, you don't want the people to be subjected to the swear words. <laughs> Exactly. Right. <laughs> All right. So I I also like in this section there there are different things you can win by being a good employee. Right. right. So and it's not about what they are. It's about what they represent. It's about what they represent. But here they are. They're finger traps. <laughs> erasers. <laughs> They're erasers. They're caricature portraits. Is a, you've got a ton, as you can see. <laughs> and I like that he like later in the episode he talks he he points out that the erasers are mostly decorative because there are no pencils or whatever. <laughs> and then that makes me think, so how is the finger trap not mostly decorative? Like <laughs> I mean, I guess you could actually put your fingers in it. I guess yeah, you could <laughs> 
And you would know which ones are like, oh yeah, this one's the hardest one. Really hard to get so, out of this. So a finger trap to me is like, it, it's probably one of the stupidest things ever invented. <laughs> right. But it, it, it will entertain, you know, a seven-year-old if you want to entertain a seven-year-old before the seven-year-old decides that they're going to just break it. <laughs> well, they're the classic, I only have like three tickets left at Scandia. And, and I get, and you can't not, I mean, like the idea of saving and banking is hard when you're young. So you're like, well, yeah, let's just get the finger trap, you know? So you got the token. You're thinking, what am I going to do with that it's token? Jesus. Maybe, maybe I'll do a, a ski ball game. Yeah. Then you get on a little do bit the, of a run. Do the ski ball. Then what you do is after the ski ball is done, you wiggle that last ticket out. So you get one more ticket. You get it to break behind. Yeah, the, that's always the know. best. Yeah, no, you don't because just pull. if it's your last game, you know you're not stealing from yourself. Right, right. And then of course you bring that over to the the the, the table, and now you have to choose something. And of course, the, the option, the, the best thing to do, I think, in most people's mind, is just to buy the most expensive thing. Like, you know, if you got 120 tickets and they're selling something for 110 tickets Cash and that's that what in, you can yeah. afford, that's what you want. But then that means that what you are getting is the most expensive thing and one of the least expensive things. Right. <laughs> because you've got that remainder. So you'll probably walk out with like, you know, like a mini basketball and a finger trap. Right. <laughs> Maybe more than one finger trap. That's even worse. We're like, well, maybe I'll give this to somebody. Yeah, yeah if you've got a, you know, if you've got a little brother or sister, you know, that that might be a a little prank that you play on them, I guess. Yeah, um, it reminds me of like I and I always liked the old version of Wheel of Fortune where they didn't get like they got money, but they had to spend it in the shop. Mm-hmm. Do you remember that? The wheel yes, for like so like after each round like okay you won you know five thousand dollars and it's like oh rad you have five thousand dollars okay now you got to go in like this little shopping spree and they yeah. have like a little showcase and inevitably like you'd get what you want and then you go okay well you have like two hundred dollars left you're like I get the ceramic dalmatian <laughs> there's always a ceramic like dalmatian a ceramic greyhound I would love to to now get my hands on somebody who's just still sitting on one of those one of those wheel well, of fortune you, dogs i'm i'm assuming that there's tons of those just floating floating around southern california garage sales Dude, i would just sit there and i'd be rooting them like he's gonna have to get the dog <laughs> when you watch somebody win two and then they end up like in, in having to settle for the like two dogs <laughs> i just love it like, all right, well, myself... you're, you're going to the Bahamas, and <laughs> and here's two ceramic dogs. I uh, I find myself viewing Dylan differently this watch. Oh, yeah? I mean, I think that he was just a sort of a delight to me before. But now that I'm watching it with you, I'm kind of feeling like, actually, if you had to actually work next to Dylan, he would probably be really annoying. <laughs> right. I mean, he's he's really fun to watch. He's probably not. It's like if you live next to 
you know, if you live next to Kramer. Right, right. You know, it's it's uh, words aside, you know, he's he's a little quirky, right? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, you know, it's kind of fun to watch him menace Jerry. Uh, it wouldn't it'd be a little bit less fun if he was actually you yeah, if you actually, were Jerry. Yeah, mm, yeah right. <laughs> um, so anyway, uh, he's explaining that these things are you know things that you can win. And he's very proud of them, and he's a pr- and he's proud enough to show Helly his sort of various prizes. Right. And uh, then she says, "Well, what about that etching of Mark on on his desk?" And he totally dismisses it. He's like, "Ah, it's not a prize. It's just something that they gave him." Right. Right. He didn't like. Yeah. So he didn't. There's no com- no competitive factor in his mind. I'm I'm like, well, what are these things? Are the are, isn't that not what a prize is? Some, right. Something that some, but he, I guess he thinks I earned these, and, right, and right. so then I. This guy is delighting me. I think he's hilarious. I do think that he's a little bit of a tool. So it's so when I you know having spent a good chunk of time in corporate America, you always go through various trainings to like learn how to work with people, and learning what like what motivates people. And then one of the ones we went through was there's I forget the name of it, but it was primarily using like a red, blue, green color wheel. And uh, you would answer a series of questions that would chart you on that color wheel as what you were like in your standard state, like what you're, you know, everything's fine. You know, mm-hmm. what's what, your default? Position? What motivates you? Right? And then you would answer a series of questions to see what you would be like under like a stressful situation. And then you would map that and see what, like, where do you start and where do you end up? Mm. So that way, and then you can, so you kind of know what motivates people in general. And then you would kind of get an idea of understand how they respond to, uh, to conflict or, or stress or crisis, and then kind of see, help you navigate and maybe take less things personally. So like the red would be that, that little third was, the area that was sort of driven to win competitive, mm-hmm. um, okay. you know, so, so that, and then, so the negative side of that, like the positive side of that, that's somebody on your team that's really gonna, gonna push the others and really move towards, uh, you know, completing all these deadlines and this and that they're, they're, they're motivated mm-hmm. by the work in some degree, but then the negative side of that is they can become, uh, competitive to the point where their success might mean somebody else needs to fail. Right. Um, mm-hmm. So then there's the blue, and the blue is they're much more personally motivated. They're motivated by uh, the human interaction between their coworkers, and and um, you know they're the ones that are going to ask you about your weekend. They're going to be the ones that mm-hmm. are asking how your kids are doing, right? And and they may share a little bit more of that. They want to find a connection. But the downside of that, like especially in conflict, or whatever, they may they they now will start taking things very personal. They will take any criticism as an attack. They could become uh, standoffish in that regard because they're feeling like, you know, the, the this is not business anymore. Um, and then you have the the green, which is uh, data driven, right? So these are these are the folks that are, uh, you know, that that very factually motivated. They mm-hmm. want the information. They will do the investigation. They will, you know, present the best arguments. The downside is that they could get the what they call paralysis by analysis. 
now mm-hmm. you're just you're well what about this what about this what about this to the point where you're not actually accomplishing anything you're meeting to set up meetings to set up meetings then there's the hub and the hub is sort of like right there in the middle like bullseye and that's a balance of all three so when i so i think about that a lot because i see a certain representative of that here right like irv and and so like i mean obviously uh like irv strikes me as a little more data driven right like he's he's very much these are the rules right this is that right uh mark being um probably a little bit more in the blue right he seems to to have a little bit more of a personal relate we see it with with his reaction to pd being gone we uh the way he he sort of ditches the playbook to sort of uh, work with Heli, um, right? Yeah, uh, that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. And uh, and of course, uh, you've got Dylan's competitiveness, right? He wants to win. So, so Heli, we're not. So Heli is sort of just like we. I don't know if we know where she's at yet. I I think you're probably right on that. I would say that Irv is very data driven. Uh, maybe until he meets Bert. Mm-hmm. And then maybe you see a shift uh, in that respect. Well, so here's the thing: is it's actually Heather and I took this. I, I brought it home to kind of get an idea, and like I, she starts off very blue, so very personal. She's much more of the relationship mm-hmm. driven. But when there was conflict or stress, she would go. She would shoot very far to the red. So if there's any melons involved, she goes from blue to red. <laughs> yeah. So it's you know, and then red can be like, all right, now I want to win this argument. Maybe more than I want to <laughs> resolve the issue, um, and it was helpful to know that, right? And then I was uh, a hub, and when I was in conflict, uh, I didn't move. Interesting. And so that was kind of telling for it was helpful for her because she's like, "Oh, well, this makes a lot of sense because when we get in arguments, you don't." She always interpreted it as I was just not engaged because she's like why don't you blow up? Why don't you get, Yeah. like, why don't you move? And it's, and so I don't. And so it becomes like, so the frustration can be, well, now, now I'm just kind of, I've got good arguments or at least I'm creating more frustrating arguments because I'm able to think uh, on my feet a little bit more because I'm not maybe consumed with, you know, a different type of reaction. Um, so uh, it's an interesting thing to see is like maybe we'll see the transition from one area to the next, like just because they're, you know, you know, maybe in stress, we'll see Dylan go. Maybe maybe he goes to blue when maybe he gets more personal mm-hmm. with things or maybe that same thing with her, right, goes from data to blue or we'll see. Right. We'll see how, you know, in, in conflict will will Mark become more competitive or, you know, so those those are interesting aspects of the office culture that I think is uh, I don't know if these things are are directly um, feeding the the creation of these characters, but uh, I can't help but notice it. So, how this test? How how, do, how uh, prevalent do you think this test is in corporate America? I would say probably pretty prevalent, if not that specific one, a variation of it. I've I've seen lots of similar uh, approaches. I know um, hmm. a mutual friend of ours. They they do. They do this like through their church, and it's very. I mean, it's it's a little bit different, but it's kind of it's the same concept. But it's like it feels like you're you're searching for the same information. 
So it's it's a little bit like the like doing a personality test to learn about yourself and learn about your coworkers, but it's specifically focused on kind of the the qualities that you would want in a corporate environment. Right, and it helps you also know how to navigate, right? Like so if you know that you have a if you have a a person on your team that will go maybe a little more competitive, like as a, as a manager, it was really helpful, right? So I know how to kind of deal with these personalities a little bit more when, uh, when things are getting tough. Like, Oh, I know I have to, I, this person's going to need some, some check-ins. They're going to need me to want to say, Hey, how's, how's everything going? How you feeling? You know, that kind of stuff. So that helps help me know that I can't just, you know, one size doesn't necessarily fit all for all the people when you're trying to manage them. Like that's, I think that's one of the goals. And then like, how do you navigate with each other? So we, people actually put them up on their, uh, like cubicles so people could see it, right? You can see how they, <laughs> they're motivated. Uh, all right. Well, maybe uh, in a future podcast, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, we'll do this little test. How long does it take to do this test? Uh, not very long. And, and I mean, we it's, do it's, this test, we learn a little something about each other. Yeah. I mean, it's right up there with like, you know, which golden girl are you on Facebook or something? But mm-hmm. Okay. I'm I'm Blanche, by the way. Um, all right, everybody so during... thinks they're a Blanche. <laughs> uh, during a welcome party headed by floor manager Milchek, Helly becomes uncomfortable and attempts to escape by writing her outside self a note of resignation, but the elevator shuts down. Mark claims this is due to Lumen's built-in code detectors which prevent unauthorized communication between selves. Mark claims responsibility and is put into the break room as punishment. Uh, so there's a lot that happens in this particular section. One of the arguments that Mark gives for not quitting is because it will effectively end your Lumen life. Right. What do you think about this? It's it's an it's a fascinating idea, right? Like like if it were to happen, like if you could just get out, then yeah, yeah. that that version of you would cease to exist. This really goes to demonstrate how they are so independent, at least from 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 their minds perspective, from their Audi that they yeah. are, the, you know, it isn't like okay, well, if I stop existing, then I still live as myself the full right. and complete uh me but it's like but that but it, it is true it is a death right i mean it's 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 but the longer i think it becomes more true the longer you work there right so if you let's say you've been working there for 20 years and you decide to quit and wipe your memory you've lost a big chunk of your life right right and effectively in, ending that part of your life a 30 year life right for that period of time but for heli it'd be like i blacked out and i lost 12 hours right yeah the earlier you do it the better one would think so i don't feel like this is a good argument on mark's part i feel like this is this is something that he's kind of resigned to live with himself but if you look back, you know, if he looks back on like if I would have quit day two, like Heli, then I wouldn't have this problem. Well, he's so this is uh, interesting because I think this goes to like if I want to use that same test, I think he's we go like this is where he's blue, right? I mean, he's 
he's relating to her on a personal level. Mm-hmm. This isn't a, hey, this is the job. This is what you signed up for. The Audi, you know, blah, blah, blah. Whether you like it or not, the you that is in the outside world does want the you that's on the inside to do this. Like, th- that's how you would go through, like, more of a data-driven approach. Um, right. You know, maybe the more competitive approach might come in and go, hey, you know what? Fight through this. You're, you're, you're you know, you can do this. You can, you know, try to motivate through success. Where he's coming through and going like, well, you'll die. Because that's where his he sees it, right? So he's not messing. I don't think he's doing a good job of making an argument for her, but he's make he's revealing about himself, like well, and well, he's also the kind of guy who's like, I'm gonna meet someone like Petey, and he's gonna be my best friend, and he's gonna be my world, right? He's he I'm I'm so relational that my force of gravity will change to orbit my best friend. Right. And the idea of a best friend is pretty, it appears so far in this very limited world that we've seen, unique to him. It's unique to him. And I mean, of course, I think we're going to see this eventually with Irv as well uh, later in the episode. But uh, he's the kind of guy who thinks my work best friend is my real best friend. Uh, Whereas I think most people view this a little bit differently. I mean, or maybe that's just me. I, I, I maybe I'm, I'm projecting a little bit of my own proclivities. Well, you know, like I said, we talked about like I have friends at work, and then I stop working at that place, and I don't hang out with them again. Um, and right, and of course that would be completely different if that's if, if that's was the a, only culture that you understand. The only version of of life I knew was was dependent on. And I wanted to make friends, and it was dependent on having friends. Mm-hmm. And that's it's a fascinating thing too, because the outside uh, Mark is not friendly. <laughs> he's not. <laughs> he's not relational. Oh, we're gonna right? get at to least, that. At least, at least post, guy. at least post incident, right? But I mean, uh-huh. uh, but I think that that's. So I think it is a fascinating thing that we're getting to see. So in this bit of the program, we they play this little. No, icebreaker game with the ball. Mm-hmm. Now, I used to have to do this a lot. I used to have to do these games a lot. I used to have to design these games. I used to have to like think up new games. Have Have you ever had to play these games, like the get-to-know-you games? Oh, yeah. If you recall, I was in charge of icebreakers for a while. Okay, well, if, uh, yeah. <laughs> forgot, I forgot. I forgot that you were... This was actually part of your job description. Okay. So, um, what, what have you ever seen a game like this work effectively? <laughs> I no. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Right. I mean, there are. I guess there are people that might be. Uh, look, icebreaker, especially in, in when we're doing corporate ones, like like we're going to do a corporate offsite. All we care about is like, what's the menu? <laughs> sure. Can we drink? Uh-huh. How much of actual work are we going to not have to do? <laughs> Very rarely is it like, oh, this is going to make us a better cohesive team. <laughs> all right. Uh, so in this game, Irv says that he likes all Lumen's principles equally. <laughs> but <laughs> Right. <laughs> so <laughs> That's so a... funny to me. That is such a... Such an amazing, like what? It's so creepy. The whole sequence, the is whole like, thing. Like from if you're looking at it from Helly's perspective, this whole thing just seems like a 
science experiment. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's so funny because it's like, it's amusing, but it's super, super creepy because it's, it's, it re- and also it feels like a really nice critique on uh, corporate attempts. Like, it feels like there are people that when they make these decisions, and like the human resources gets together with the executive team and go, hey, this would be a great idea for these people. It's like, <laughs> you don't know how people are. You don't know how people work. <laughs> I love that there are nine core principles. I I feel like this is what happens with older institutions, like especially corporate institutions. You 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 have like maybe start with like three core principles, and then over time it's like yeah, but we're society has changed, and and our 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 workforce has changed, and the ownership has changed. So let's add a couple, and then you get like a. You know, a brainstorming event where you, you know, you, you do a little retreat and then you come up with a couple new core principles. Nine core principles means that this has been going on for a while. And uh, and I like that one of them is cheer. <laughs> yeah, cheer is great. Cheer is a wonderful one. He says, for the purposes of this game, cheer. And he, Irv gets this tiny little mischievous grin. <laughs> like like it's it really is like he's really loves this particular principle <laughs> and and cheer is such a great um like cheer is one of those words that you'll only use around christmas right yeah it's not one that is used you use it like maybe to cheer up i mean i guess you have cheerleaders right but you never really think of that right like when you think of a cheerleader and you think of a cheer I never really consider that like, oh, yeah, that's going to give us that's going to make us feel. I always think of it like this is a holiday thing. Like it's, you know, let's let's spread some Christmas cheer or something. Right. Cheer outside of outside of the context of cheerleading or Christmas makes almost no sense. It cheer is like it's the eggnog equivalent to an emotion. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Like the rest of the year, you're happy. But on Christmas, you get to have cheer. (laughs) (laughs) Like, you know, when you hear somebody pray about over their food and then they use the word mm-hmm. nourish. Like, no one's using the word nourish. I, mean, um, <laughs> I don't even think scientists use the word nourish. <laughs> All right. So uh, and then you have this really weird exchange with Mark where he's actually like this game is actually serving a particular purpose. Like Mark is visibly upset that he's lost his best friend. And this kind of crowd or icebreaker, you know, small group game is just kind of, it's kind of been created to allow these Lumen employees to connect with each other on kind of an interpersonal way. And Mark is ready to do it. He's in tears. And of course, Milchek completely shuts it down. Yeah. And, so, in other words, we only want the superficiality of your emotion. We do right. not you, want any real emotion here. Create a game that's supposed to, and it's doing exactly what it's supposed to do. Yeah. And that's, oh, no, that's not, we don't do that. And that's true. I mean, that's, I, I think that's exactly it. Like, no, these, these team building things are only created because they think that they will help and they're only needed to help to make you a better functioning team here in this world. 
Yeah, it's it's sort of like we're trying to create something out of the out of the out of these parts to create this whole that's a little bit lesser than the parts, you know, because right. we only want enough of you and your personality to make you fit into this particular machine, right? So we're going to sort of use something like this game to craft you in the shape of a cog. And your emotions they're a little bit misshapen. We we can't have those because at the end of this we want to function like a machine. Right. Yeah, it's it's a uh, it's pretty great. I mean, it's like cuz it does feel like in many ways this is a bit of commentary. Yeah, this is sort of again, slow burn into kind of a a psychological torture situation. And you know, even the little things like the game will do that to you. Um uh, we meet uh Mr. Grainer for the first time. Who oh, yeah. as far as I can tell is like yard duty slash disciplinarian. Right. I feel like he's the person that's kind of out of place because most corporate institutions don't have this person on staff. Like he he's almost like military police or something. And like that's this is when you start to feel like it ups the the threat level in this place, right? I mean, we we we've, we've been uh, seeing a glimpse through like you know PD's cryptic warnings, but this is like <laughs> the idea that this happens, and and uh, Mark knows who he is and sort of tries to you know mm-hmm. smooth things over suggests this isn't maybe as rare an occasion as you might think. And if you're if you're in Helly's from Helly's perspective, it's like, oh, this every every I've only been here for ten hours, and I've or things just keep seeming to disintegrate. Well, well, and she acts, and I really appreciated this part of the episode. She acts exactly how I would have acted. She acts like, nope, all right, I'm done. I, I, I this is enough. I've seen enough. Uh, I'm writing myself a post-it note, and I am getting the hell out of here. And of course, you know, this, they're not going to let this happen. And, um, I, I just feel like she's perfect. The way that she responds to this is perfect to allow the audience to feel like, you know, I, this is, this is me. This is sort of my representative in the room. Um, the code detectors, do you think the code detectors are a real thing? It's interesting, right? I mean, like I'm assuming everything is, uh, like viewed, right? Like it feels like everything would be like this place is not going to have cameras monitored, but it just feels like it's, it's more likely that there's someone looking through a camera. Right. If you were to slip something in your pocket, how would, I don't see how a code detector would. And, uh, you know, and Milchek was aware of what was going on. So he was there. Yeah. He saw the whole thing go down. So he could easily have put in a warning too. All right, next storyline. Mark goes on an awkward date, gets drunk, and accosts an anti-Lumen activist. Later on, he's visited by Mrs. Selvig. All right, so i got a couple of setting questions for you, Steve. Mm. Do we know where this is located, and do we know when it is located? Um, Somewhere cold, right? Right, right. Yeah, I don't think we do, right? Because, you know, he like miss, you know, his his date is sort of putting up with his shenanigans. And one of the things that he does is he he assumes that she's from Minnesota. She's from Montana. 
And so this is in the real world, right? Right. Uh, this is somewhere remote, mountainous, and cold. But I don't think we know exactly where this is located. No, I, I think you're right. Um, yeah. And I think it's also interesting, like, it's so... Uh, we get the idea, you know, from um, Helly's questions that she gets asked, like, you know, does she know, can she name any states? And I right. think it's, yeah, yeah. so I think it is interesting that we have a moment where, um, now granted, he's been drinking and he's obviously not super interested, but we have a moment where a state is brought up and he doesn't remember it even in that moment. Right. And like, again, it could be simple as yeah. he's drunk. He's really not that interested. And I totally get that. But I do find like, you start looking for any kind of, other clues as to like, well, what's sure. going on where, you know, so, so is that, you know, is that intentional? Is that, is that something we're supposed to be cognizant of? Like, you know, because it's all like, there's this lumen subsidized housing and then we've got uh, Mrs. Selvig there. Like, is this a bigger, so it starts making you wonder, is this a, a bigger experiment um, that maybe other people don't realize mm -hmm. that they're a part of because what are they protesting? What are these guys, what are the whole mind collective protesting is forced severance, right? Right. And, and, you know, and it could be this, these guys are coming up with, you know, uh, worst case scenarios or conspiracy theories, or it's, you know, where there's smoke, there's fire, right? All right. One more question about setting. I, I do have some thoughts about that, but, um, in the Lumen work environment, it almost has sort of a early 60s vibe. Mm -hmm. The light green. The fact that, like, there's one point where Irv is having this wellness check. And, you know, your Audi likes films. You're, and he owns a machine that can play them like there's no specific reference to you know what is this machine right is it a vcr is it a dvd player is it, you know what is this thing but, but there's there's all they almost give no indication when you're in lumen what year it is right and and the whole thing you know because it kind of has a early 60s mystique you almost are disoriented as a viewer. But my feeling is that in the town outside, it's supposed to be modern day. Is, is that your impression? Yeah. That's... Have we seen a cell phone? Have we? I don't know. I'll have to look a little bit closer on this next episode. Yeah. It's a little odd. Oh, we have. Little... We do see a cell phone, right? Doesn't uh, Petey have a cell phone? At the end of this episode, yeah, I think he does. I think you're probably right about that. He does have, but a it isn't phone. like an iPhone. It's not, and he's also got like a little cassette player that he's playing the, you know, the the recording of the break room thing. Right. That could easily be the you know, the technology used for Lumen seems pretty advanced when they do the chip and everything. Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. Of course, of course. So it's it's interesting. We're not quite sure what where this is located. We're not quite sure when this is located. Um, all right. So when Mark is arguing with this young activist, he uses a past self argument. He ba he basically says, 
did your past self enslave you by bringing you up the street to this block? And he's almost using that as an analogy, like saying, we are always going to be constricted by the choices our past self made. I happen to be a Lumen employee who chose the severance procedure. That's just the same as everyone else who makes a choice in the past and has to live with it in the present, right? Mm-hmm. What do you think? What do you think about this argument? Um, it's it's revealing, right? I mean, I think it you know the same way that we um, the argument that he makes to Helly to try to convince her to mm-hmm. stay is you know like hey you know you'll effectively die. This version of you dies, mm-hmm. um, whether the good or bad, right? That's that's just a reality, and um, and this becomes a revealing. So that reveals a little bit maybe about himself, and it's like okay, this is because that's the same thing, right? Like he, his a choice is made on his behalf to like, he, he basically is like kind of like a Frankenstein situation, right? Like I was created, uh, <laughs> by a, somebody else created, like and it turns out, yeah, sure. It's me on the outside, but I was created. Mm-hmm. I didn't ask to be created, but now here I am. And now I have to live with that. And I'd rather live like this than not live at all. That's, that's kind of where he's at, right? That's what that argument suggests. And then on the outside, it's like, well, I don't get to regret this almost, right? Like it almost seems like I don't, I just have to make do. Mm-hmm. I made a decision. That version of me made a decision with less information than maybe I have now. And, and I can't undo that. Um, so it's, it's like, he makes the argument that feels like a lamentation to some degree. It sounds, you know, it's very, to me, it sounds very similar to someone who, is exposed to all of the things that are, you know, all a religious person who has been exposed to all of the things that the religion has uh, to, to account for, like all of the detriments of the religion, but then kind of responds a little bit too aggressively to say, yeah, but everything is messed up. Right. So my, my, you know, the, the sins of my religion are not any worse, better or worse than the sins of any, any kind of belief system or something like that. Right, it does strike me a little bit like he's a he's sort something of a lumen apologist, when the real reason why he's wanted wanted severance is because he's severely broken. He's a severely broken creature. He's experiencing grief and trauma, and that's why he made that choice. Well, uh, and, and going back, but, with that, your... but he's not going to say that in polite, in you know, sure. Well, in, he maybe he hasn't even come to terms with that fully and to say that out loud would mean that he'd have to now reconcile that Mm. himself and i think you're uh you know sort of like the uh post-mortem religion experience is 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 a is a good analogy because it's like i've seen this before where people you know maybe they something happens in their life and they become maybe real disenchanted with with their their choices or their religion or the church or whatever it is but they've they feel pot committed. It's like I could sit here that's and I could exactly what that's this is exactly Mark's problem. He's now pot committed to severance. So this it's a... like if I come out and I say, well, yeah, I agree with you. Well, well, then that says everything that I've been working on, everything that I've done, and everything that I have to keep doing was 
you know, I, I have to change my entire life and I have to accept the fact that I may, that all of this other stuff was wasted. And if, and now I actually have more work to do to get out of it. Right. And he made it, he made a choice. Mark made a choice. It's, it's irreversible. And so the, if you want to avoid cognitive dissonance, you're going to convince yourself with every word you say to anyone else that you made the right choice. Yeah, because what? Because what, what good would it? Like he could sit there and say, "Look, yeah, I totally agree with you. You're 100 percent right," and I'm stuck. So, yeah. How now? What? And that's you know, you're not really trying to help. You're preventing. Where were you? You could even make the argument. You could be like, "Well, where were you when I was making this decision?" <laughs> right? I mean, who knows? Right? I mean, there's a whole slew of 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 things to take from that. And I think it's. I think that's where it becomes really fascinating too. Is the uh, the just the he's not really come to terms with it. I mean, he so far, everything we've seen of his outside world tends to involve it being a topic of conversation. Right. <laughs> the thing that you're, that you signed up for so that you could just forget about the problems of life has just now created a new set of problems. Well, the thing, I mean, and this is what he says during his date, you know, she says, isn't it weird that you've got this whole other life and you, you can't remember it. And he's like, well, for a lot of people, that's the point. And the implication there is, for me, that was the whole reason I did this. Right. But I wonder if it, if the side effect here isn't a bigger problem in that he has nothing to distract him. He only has the part of his life that is, quote unquote, not grieving is a part that he can't remember. So to right. his Audi self, he's only ever idle when he's grieving. Right. Right. Yeah, he he wakes up like if he if he goes in to work crying, he comes out of work like, oh, that's right, I was just crying about that thing, and now I'm thinking mm -hmm. about it. Mm -hmm. That's right. Okay. So really, in his all he's done is the best for his attempt for his attempt to try to forget. He's only rewarded his any with that. I guess the I guess the virtue is he gets to sleep more, and if you're depressed, you want to just sleep all the time. So basically yeah. what you've done is you've cut your day in half so that you just don't have to be awake for a lion's share of, of your day, I guess. Yeah, I guess so. All right, next uh, section here. Later, Irving hallucinates a black liquid covering his desk and has administered a wellness check where counselor Mrs. Casey, Miss Casey, recites various facts about Irving's Audi, with Irving forced to react neutrally. Uh, at the Wellness Center, Irving also meets Bert, who is head of the two-person optics and design department. Um, I love this bit about Irv saying, well, Irv has been caught dozing, I guess. Right. And he says, I can't help that I was hired older than you. I just thought that was really an interesting line because it really kind of shows you like this light, this guy's life, as far as he knows it, began when he was 45 or something. Right. right? Whereas Dylan was hired at 30 or something, whatever it was. I don't know how, when they were hired, but they equate being hired with being born. Right. Right. It's kind of like a kid saying, I didn't ask to be born. Uh, you know, I can't, I can't help how old I was when I was hired. Right. And this is where we get the whole, um, uh, uh, cleaning the sea 
theory. Uh, I love that Dylan is thinking that they're they gotta they gotta kill all those nasty eels that are down there. Right. <laughs> That's what we're doing. Like, and but it also shows what their limitations are. Yeah. Right. What What can they think about and and what now, do they have? What do they have access to and with, with their imagination? Yeah, that's right. Dylan's idea is if things are so bad that we're doing this job down here, then things it must be sort of post-apocalyptic up there. Like the seas are rising, and people are trying to figure out how to live in the sea, and uh, so yeah, he just imagines that uh, that the world above is is a hellscape. Right. Um, this is when we meet Bert for the first time. Now, when I first watched this, I had no idea that Christopher Walken was going to be in the show. Same. So th- it was quite a surprise to me to see him, uh, and the the just this idea of Irv bonding over sort of the decor of Lumen. The tote bags. Uh, I shall, think, I shall be thinking of nothing else until then. <laughs> so just goes to show you how little, how how little stimulus these people get. But it's also funny because, like, again, having worked in corporate uh, places, when you hear that, oh yeah, no, there, uh, there's a gift coming. Ah, <laughs> oh, you can go, oh, what's that gift gonna be? <laughs> Getting new jackets? Are we getting new jackets? <laughs> I mean, I got, I have a, I have a messenger bag that I still use. From um, Dylan is uh, not happy with the idea that that Bert has been fraternizing or Irv has been fraternizing with Bert again to your uh, personality type that you mentioned, uh, hyper competitive. He he's he's outside of our department. He must be the enemy. Yeah, at a minimum, at a minimum, he's he's a threat to just their their way of life. Outside, Mark once again meets with Petey, who explains that he has been uh, he has integration sickness from reversing his severance. Petey tells Mark of the break room and plays a recording of himself repeatedly reading out loud a stringent apology, with Milchek forcing him to repeat the lines. So, and he's been mapping the floor. He's quit his job and now is in hiding, undergone the severance procedure, and now he wants to recruit Mark to his cause. But what is the cause? What's what's the hope? Right. What's Petey's endgame? Yeah, so, uh, yeah, that's the question. Is Petey, does Petey, is he interested in Mark or is he interested in exposing something else and he's using Mark? Or is he just trying, because they're genuinely friends, he's trying to get Mark out of a place that's built to psychologically torture you? Or is he trying to take down the whole thing? Right. So that's, that's I think, the, the the question at this point is, is he trying to, uh, is this is this Petey versus Lumen? Uh, is this Petey for Mark? And why, ma- yeah, why map out the floor? It seems like... Maybe there are bits of Lumen that are hidden that you need a map to to discover. We've seen we've we've seen Mark navigate the labyrinth that is 
lumen and we know that there are other doors uh, we just learned that there's you know we learned about another department and so you, you, we've seen the building is it's very large yeah, yeah and and so there's like well well there's obviously more stuff going on and maybe it's all just experimental but what are they doing and uh and so the idea is like well if you only know how to get to maybe he only knows how to get to his spot mm-hmm. um because that's all he's it's all he needs you know everybody's just kind of on a need to know right basis. yeah he knows his little, um, little maze that he's that he does every day and and if you're going to navigate that uh, you better know where you're going because I mean, obviously, if if they if they're they're gonna catch you, mm-hmm. whether the code detectors are real or they're just observing, it's very hard to navigate that place without you know. You get you better know where you're headed. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Finally, Mark gives Petey shelter in his house as they're ta- as he's taking a shower. Petey suffers hallucinations and collapses. So this kind of recalls something that we learned in both episodes in this, the idea is that the severance procedure is spatially dictated. That's the phrase that they use spatially dictated, meaning that if you are in your office environment, you only have office memories, right? And this is actually how the human brain functions on a more limited way. Like if you were going to visit a, you know, an old house that you hadn't been in for several years you 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 would have memory cues uh they these would be uh, spurred by your external environment and uh you'd have sort of a different mnemonic experience and of course you would almost immediately integrate those and that's what the severance feature doesn't allow you to do um but in this hallucination he it looks like he's in an office bathroom at the same time that he's in Mark's bathroom showering. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like the reintegration process has had some sort of damaging effect to the spatial component to memory where he spatially he's, he's hallucinating as well. Right. Cause there's an interesting aspect too, where the, any part of him because that's the thing so these memory like it brings up questions like can you now start remembering things that happened when you were inside Mm -hmm. or did he you know since he did the reintegration and he was reintegrated while he was still going to lumen um you know that had to be new to him Mm -hmm. right like you know because i don't know if there was a melding of memories and i think we see that here where like the any memory is like almost adapting to what's happening it's like he knows he's in a bathroom mm-hmm. but he only knows that's right a lumen bathroom that's right so he sees so it's like so when it's happening it's like okay he's in two places at once but the memory is like well i can only associate this with something i've seen and so right there's this overlap and also there's a temporal element where he's a, he's almost experiencing two different realities at one time right uh and it, to me it makes me think Okay, maybe they don't have showers in the Lumen bathrooms. And so the fact that he's in a bathroom and taking a shower is is like cognitive, I don't know, cognitive doubling or something. Right. And like he's like, well, this is where running water comes from. <laughs> you know, this is like a large faucet. Um, and then the, uh, 
I think that the parallel here is that we have two different hallucinations in this episode, one with Irv and the, the, the black tar that causes him to have to go to the wellness check. And then we have the PD's, you know, PD's uh, hallucination that ends this. And I think that the story that they're trying to tell is that the, the severance procedure absolutely has cognitive side effects. Right. Uh, not just for someone who's gone through the process like PD has to reintegrate, but it will actually have hallucinating side effects for Lumen employees that don't undergo this. And you wonder if any of that has to do with age. Oh, interesting. Because um, they're both older. You, if, because they're both older, right. so they've they've accumulated more memories, right? And they've accumulated more uh, experiences. And it's interesting, too, that Herb's uh, black tar, you know, it seems to be the that coincides with him, you know, the, the, the day before, right, right, right. noticing all, all the black gunk under his... Uh, fingernails and like well i was gonna yeah let's let's go ahead and move on to our spoilers section so if if you have um if you are just watching this for the very first time with us and you don't want to hear spoilers then go ahead and uh, sign off now so yeah so irv's uh irv's in this episode notices black paint under his fingernails and we learn much later that he's using copious amounts of black paint uh, because he is a a visual artist. Right. And uh, I thought that was interesting because this is also the episode where they call out the finger traps. Right. And so it's almost like uh, Irv is unaware of his traps. He's mentally trapped for sure. But there's only evidence of the trap in his fingernails, right? So there's right. so, something, I don't know, there's some kind of parallel here with the... Well, and if you want to take that even further, right? Like, if the finger traps are representative there is a trap, and the erasers are mostly dec- decorative. <laughs> so your your yes. attempt to erase maybe certain memories, your attempt to erase uh-huh. certain parts of your life, like, it's not as effective as you Right, yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. Very good. Right. Did you notice anything else uh, that, that can only be mentioned in the spoiler section? Well, I mean, I th- obviously the um, we know we get a better sense of who Helly is, uh, right, in relation to the, the organization. So this, yeah, this it's an- so seeing that seeing that experience now, I think uh-huh. has been really interesting on the rewatch, right? Because we know a little bit more because we because and what was interesting the first time you watched this, like, there's so much going on, there's so much to retain that like the PD narrative sort of like goes away and like he really becomes just a, a sort of a, a a jumping off point right 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 and and in the first you know two three episodes it's like like oh this is a central figure to this and he is but kind of just in the beginning and it and yeah you, you almost forget that. how important he was when when you get to the end right of the and so and the same thing with heli like you like you're trying to figure out like in this episode, well, what makes her special by the time you get to episode three, I think you kind of forgot all because you're just well, on to the next thing. That, and then... I felt like in these first two episodes, she's the one that I most identify with. She's the one who, mm-hmm. who I would want. I, I see myself most. I see her reactions to Lumen as the way I would react to Lumen. Mm-hmm. I'd be the kind of guy who would like write a note and leave. But by the time you get to the end of the season, she's almost the most 
villainous person. Her Audi is the most villainous person that we've met. Right. So it's it's weird to think like the innie is the person that you is like the like the chief protagonist and the Audi is the chief antagonist or something like that. Well, and you could also make the argument that uh, if we were to follow Mark out of work, we probably wouldn't think very much. <laughs> yeah, Mark's not a good hang outside of work, right? <laughs> Frank or the beans.